Section 16 of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 Brimful of Wrath and Cabbage. Word had reached Blenheim Hill, Schoharie County, as early as July 1845, that it was important to anti rentism to make a decisive stand in adjoining Delaware County the next time the sheriff tried to hold a sale at Moses Earl's. The Indians of Blenheim Hill were anxious to make good their failure to send help in March, and fully aware that a successful sale in Andes would mean redoubled efforts by the landlords in all the counties, they held a series of special drills in Hilton's woods. On August 4th, three days before time to go to Dingle Hill, the Calico warriors were unexpectedly kept busy at home, the authorities had got wind of the plan for joint action, and in compliance with urgent appeals from Sheriff Green Moore across the county line, General John S. Brown, the sheriff of Schoharie County, invaded the backbone. He had heard that the Indians were armed and ready, brimful of wrath and cabbage, and he too was anxious for a fight. Armed to the teeth, and ferocious enough to eat a biled engine, he and under-sheriff Tobias Boke set out with warrants for the arrest of Dr. John Cornell, Benjamin Curtis, Thomas Peasley, John Mayhem, and Thomas Roman, the strong men of the Schoharie County Anti-Rent Association. They were most eager to get Dr. Cornell, a worthy and respected gentleman and a skilled physician, because the old news-carrier, as they called him, relayed messages and took the latest word into all the remote farms he visited. All the way up the valley, Sheriff Brown pressed men into service with him. By the time he reached North Blenheim village under the hill, he had a four-wagon train of armed deputies. He had hoped to sneak his men up the hill through the dangerous rocks under cover of darkness, but as he began the ascent, he found a masked band waiting to seize the arms and ammunition. Horns sounded, and his posse, most of them inexperienced, and many unwillingly enlisted, hugged their guns and looked uneasy. The sheriff prudently ordered a retreat to Fink's Tavern to await the daylight. The next morning, an anti-rent scout was watching from a small clearing along the Schoharie Creek, when the invading force again moved toward the backbone. He sent up a coil of smoke as a warning. A second scout, stationed at John Mayhem's log cabin, caught the signal and relayed it over the mountain top. The posse moved cautiously up the steep narrows and stopped to arrest John Mayhem, one of the best anti-rent speakers in the county. Naturally, Mayhem was gone, but the sheriff's men opened fire on his brother Stephen as he made a dash for the woods where the Indians were gathering. Luckily for him, the bullets fell short. The posse's horses were turned loose to trample Mayhem's sixteen acres of rye, just as they later destroyed Isaac Baker's and Thomas Peasley's fields of oats. At the Peasley farm, they opened fire on Nathan Peasley, who was racing toward the woods with a basket of food. Though the shot caught him in the back, he kept on running. He was not in disguise, but the posse could not make out who he was. They badgered one of the little Peasley boys to tell them, but Mrs. Peasley stepped between them and threatened the men with a stick of wood. Nathan did not stop until he reached the shelter of the Indian camp. Then he fell exhausted, blood trickling from his side. 
Several men reached for their guns. They've commenced the shooting, they said. We'll give them all they want. But Thomas and Sheldon Peasley restrained them. If they come to attack us here, shoot to kill, said Thomas sagely. Let them alone now. We'll have the state troops here and the devil to pay if we aren't careful. Nathan agreed. Leave the work to me. If I ever find the man who shot me, I'll shoot him like a dog. Unable to find any of his quarry, the sheriff moved into Blenheim Hill, making the Brimstone Church his headquarters. From there, raiding parties were dispatched to the homes of all the anti-rent leaders. At Dr. Cornell's home, they found a small anti-rent flag hanging from the corner of the corn crib, and the commander sent six men to take it down. "'By all means,' mocked Mrs. Cornell, "'send six of your best men. Two of my little children made the flag and put it up themselves.' The deputies tramped through the house until they came to a bedroom where the frightened children were hiding. "'Get those damned brats off the bed,' barked the leader. "'You've got them there to conceal the old man.' Mrs. Cornell faced them down. "'Call off your men and get them sober,' she said. The commander repeated that she was hiding the doctor. "'There's one building down yonder you've missed,' she said. Nobody noticed her acid tone. Without thinking, four of the men rushed off in the direction she indicated. They came back swearing, took the older Cornell boys into custody, and marched them off to the Brimstone Church. During this series of raids, at least twenty boys were seized on nearby farms. Sixty years later, in a letter to a descendant of John Mayhem, Mrs. N. K. Hoagland vividly recreated the occupation of the backbone. I was then at my father's house, John J. Warner, a young girl in my teens. A large number of uprent men came to my father's house. Mother talked to them kindly and told them what the war was for and how unjust the rent was. Father was a prisoner in the Brimstone Church on this day. It seems they did not know what they were making war over. One of the men said to my mother, Is that what we were sent here for? I pay rent myself, and do not believe it is right to do so. Several others expressed the same sentiment, and said they had been warned out to fight and thought that they had to. The Brimstone Church at the time was full of men they had made prisoners. They captured every man they could find who would not say up rent. They captured also my brother John and made him a prisoner. Upon mother learning of this, she started for the church with some bread and a pie. The scene at the church brought tears to her eyes, and it also roiled her Dutch blood. John, she demanded, you come home with me. A man by the name of Jake Allen spoke and said, No, he can't go home with you. Do you think we are going to be affected by the tears of women and children? Taking the boy by the hand, saying, John, you come home with me, she bade her dear husband goodbye and returned home. All of the boys were released the next day, and with about fifteen adult captives, taken without warrants, Sheriff Brown moved to Ira Rose's tavern in Gilboa. When the anti-renters re-entered the Brimstone Church, they found the interior in near shambles. James Van Dusen hammered out new iron bands for the anti-rent pole, and early Saturday morning, August 9th, the men in Calico raised a new standard. The Indians and the farmers gathered at the church to determine on a plan to release the prisoners held in Gilboa, inasmuch as they had been taken without warrant, none had been in disguise, and they had offered no resistance. 
the young men wanted to shoulder muskets and storm the tavern, but the cautious majority wanted to try legal steps first. In the midst of the discussion, a horseman rode up breathlessly with the news that Osmond Steele had just been shot at the Earl's sale in Delaware County. Under the sobering impact of that report, even the most reckless abandoned any idea of marching to Gilboa. That afternoon Thomas Vroman went down to Mooresville with his sorrel horses, riding one and leading the other. An hour later he returned, with Warren Scudder riding the second horse. Late that night Amos Loper of the Ridge took Scudder to Lyman Roots, where the fugitive had his boots resold by candlelight, while he gave them the details of the Moses Earl sale and its tragic aftermath. When rumors reached Delhi that Scudder was on Blenheim Hill, Colonel Cook and General Griffin led a posse of one hundred and fifty armed men on an illegal expedition to the backbone, which was beyond the borders of their county. Sheriff Brown joined them with a posse from Gilboa, and another armed unit came over the hill from Jefferson, making five hundred men in all. "'We have come to fight,' Colonel Cook grimly told the sheriff. "'Shoot the anti-renters. They are all accessories to the death of steel.' Brown reoccupied the Brimstone Church, and Cook preempted one of the Peasley farms. Hay and grain were taken from the farmers' barns to feed the horses, and cellars were raided to feed the five hundred men. This time Sheriff Brown's men succeeded in capturing Dr. John Cornell and a number of others, but only after creating chaos on Blenheim Hill. Non-offending, peaceable, and unfortunate citizens were fired upon, reported the Albany freeholder. Sally Ann Champlin was fired upon while picking berries. Three bullets were hurled at her for gathering the fruits of the fields. Jeffrey Champlin was driven into the woods, where for two nights he lived on blackberries. Even up-renters went into hiding. Handbills offering a large reward for Warren Scudder's arrest were scattered all over Blenheim, but before the posse could locate him, J. Tompkins, who lived up the mountain road toward Cobleskill, helped him across the mountains to Westerlow, Albany County. The prisoners locked up in the tavern at Gilboa refused to become subdued. Bill Roman was infuriated when he found the preacher helping the sheriff's men. "'You blackleg!' he stormed. "'Stand here and load guns to shoot the very men who have put food in your mouth and clothes upon your back?' Let the report of what you are doing get back to Blenheim Hill, and the men will hang you from the high-box pulpit where you have so often preached to them about the hell you will go to. Dr. Cornell had a chance for either deliberate or inadvertent revenge when he was asked to treat a large portion of Brown's army, who were sick with a common August ailment. The doctor administered a thorough cleansing, and more than fifty of the posse lived a strenuous life for a few days. Gilbert R. Cumming, an uprent Gilboa lawyer, set up an illegal self-constituted court, and began an inquisition of the prisoners. When the farmers sent a sympathetic lawyer to stop it, he too was arrested. As the anti-renters were reluctant to appear on any of the main roads, they persuaded Alonzo Morehouse, a carpenter who later became a famous clergyman in the Catskills in New York City, to go to J. Tompkins and ask him to get Thomas Smith, one of the ablest lawyers in the county. As I had never been implicated with them, with the exception of warm sympathy, I consented, Morehouse wrote in his autobiography. 
It was night and dark, and as I was unacquainted with the way to Tompkins's, I was compelled to inquire at every crossroad. No man could be seen until I was known to be a friend of the anti-renters, and then the husband or brother would put his head out of the window, give me directions, and say, God bless you. When Morehouse found the house on the mountain road, J. Tompkins was already on his way to Westerlow with Warren Scudder, and the only other man on the place was his father, who was too old to go and fetch the lawyer. "'Exchange your horse and take our best one,' the old man told Morehouse. "'Do not spare him. Nothing is too good for this work.' The next day Thomas Smith arrived in Gilboa. He went directly to the sheriff and demanded immediate release of the prisoners, reminding him that every civil right had been violated, and that the sheriff had encouraged mob rule by permitting Cummings's self-constituted court to function. Smith threatened to go at once to the courts and swear out warrants against Sheriff Brown, his entire posse, and the invading force from Delaware County. Since Smith was too prominent, both in his profession and in the Whig party, to be given the summary treatment accorded to the tenant's first counsel, the sheriff was thoroughly upset, and Colonel Cook promptly returned to Delaware County. It was deemed advisable by the authorities and the people of Gilboa to make a proposition to the anti-renters, the Schoharie Republican reported. John Mayhem and George Badgley were called in by Sheriff Brown for a peace conference. The sheriff promised to release all prisoners and put an end to the raids, if the influential men among the anti-renters would use that influence to make the farmers surrender all disguises, to prevent any person from appearing in disguise, and to restore peace, order, and proper respect for the law. When the two anti-renters agreed to those terms, Sheriff Brown went at once to the jail, liberated the prisoners, and proclaimed a general amnesty. The up-renters were outraged. It is a hard pill to swallow, the Albany Argus correspondent wrote. The investigation, as far as it had proceeded, had begun to develop important facts, and had it been pursued, it would, it is believed, have unfolded in detail a foul conspiracy against the government. A general resistance and rebellion were calculated on. The murder of Steele was to be the signal for the commencement of operations, Enough has been disclosed, and indeed the resolutions passed at the meeting today are sufficient to show, that the Indian combinations are identified with the general anti-rent associations, however much they deny it. In the next paragraph the correspondent betrayed the true reason for his alarm. There will be a hard struggle for the political ascendancy. Whether the Whigs will fall in with them or not is not known. Since the tenant's lawyer, Thomas Smith, was a Whig, he was accused of becoming an anti-renter for political objects, and of throwing every obstacle in the way of the sheriff. The politicians in Delhi were shocked by the wretched compromise made by the authorities of Schoharie. They demanded the immediate removal of Sheriff Brown. This very act will give the cause of rebellion and insurrection more character than it has ever claimed, wrote the Argus correspondent. It is admitting that these men have a distinct legal or political character equal with the government. End of section sixteen. Recording by Maria Casper.